0: Christmas tree yield maps, what are you talking about? Man, you'd think the corn crop was actually important or something, dog on it. On average, if you put your head in the oven and your feet in the freezer, you're comfortable. Pee, right? A pound of pee is a pound of pee, no matter how you pee it. Good day, and welcome to Wheat Beats Word here on realagriculture.com for Wednesday, October the 25th on this episode of The Word. Corn, what the? (laughs) Oh, my God. The cat sat is going on in that crop. Then big wind. Wow we had some winds in Ontario the last couple of days but last week the wind in western Canada was insane. What's the impact of that? Then we have questions about soil testing, soil fertility, the crop of all crops, my wheat crop, finish up at the end with red clover and alfalfa fall management. Let's go first off. Yes you are actually starting to give me some data. I'm getting some yield data coming in, some plot data. Coming in speaking about plots, send me the information. So, Josh, you asked for my email address a while back. I apologize, I forgot to give it. P Johnson, that's J O H N S O N, P Johnson realagriculture.com. Send me your plot results. You can tweet them to me. You can leave them in the voicemail system attached, however you get them to me. But yes, I want those plot results and love questions coming by email as well, comments, whatever. Just keep that feedback coming on the corn crop. There are some unbelievable yields already have had some reports of 275 bushels per acre that is big corn baby absolutely but my good friend Al from Elgin County down there where it was super dry I love this analogy he said Peter this is going to be another one of those years where we have Christmas tree yield maps huh Christmas tree yield maps? What are you talking about? We're going to have all sorts of green in the really good dirt areas, the low areas where it have good moisture holding capacity. And on the sand knolls, we're going to have nothing but red. Red and green, not very much yellow. I love that. Actually, he's talking about a 150 bushel per acre spread on some of the corn that's been harvested. Just quite unbelievable. So, some big yields, some ah, not so good yields, but I love the big yields. And then we come to moisture. Unbelievable what has gone on in the corn crop from a moisture perspective over the last two weeks. So, one caller from eastern Ontario saying that the corn in the last two weeks has dropped between 8 and 12% in grain moisture. That's almost unbelievable. Even in September, it is hard to lose a percent in moisture per day or even a half a percent of moisture in a day. We're in late October. If you lose a third of a point in moisture a day, that's an amazing day in October. Meanwhile, I was out and spoke in Renfrew last week, and they talked about corn silage moistures that dropped six percent per day. Sixty-three percent the grower was watching, 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 do it all the right tests. Sixty-three percent go hard, baby, cause that's perfect. The very next day, fifty-seven percent silage, the day after fifty-one percent silage, and that's just I don't understand physiologically how that can happen. They did get a light frost. But remember, in corn silage, 50% of the weight is in the cob. And the cob, the husks typically then are still tight. That cob is not losing much moisture whatsoever. Then... About 35% of the weight in the stalk, it didn't get frozen enough to really lose a lot. Only 15% of the weight is in the leaves. And so even if they lost half of their moisture, how could you lose that much one day to the next? But it's a consistent message in the areas where those moistures have dropped. In the dry areas in the deep southwest, we're down into mid-20s on corn. Meanwhile, we just go north and east of London a little bit and we get up into that Mitchell area and suddenly moistures jump dramatically. 30% corn, even one grower who a 3,000 heat unit corn calculated as heat units, 3,200 heat units as of October the 2nd. And we can say you didn't back out when we got the below nine temperatures. He actually did. He had 3,200 heat units. Yesterday, that corn was still 37% moisture, which would say it hasn't black layered yet. There's some real differences as we move in into into those shorter season areas just much much wetter corn going to be tough in the short season areas to get corn dry meanwhile in the rest of the province things have dropped really really quite dramatically so on that note i did have a question about when does corn dry standing in a shop yesterday it's pouring rain outside the grower saying it does the corn dry today and the answer is it's all about the temperature and the relative humidity and the equilibrium moisture content so believe it or not if your corn in the field is at 33 32 percent, it's just black layered if it's above that drying really becomes about the plant translocating more nutrients into the kernel and pushing the moisture out replacing it with photosynthate so then the relative humidity doesn't matter as much it's more about plant growth and temperature once you black layer it's strictly about the differential between equilibrium moisture content and the actual moisture content of the corn yesterday 12 Twelve degrees Celsius, 100% relative humidity because it's raining for crying out loud. The equilibrium moisture content on corn under those conditions would be about 25% moisture, give or take. If your corn's at 32, it's still drying. It's not drying very fast because of the difference. 32 to 25 isn't that big, but the corn is still drying even in the rain. Meanwhile, get a good day, 25 degrees Celsius, 50% relative humidity. Gosh, the equilibrium, Moisture content then is 10%, give or take. So that differential is huge. And the amount of drying can really be quite significant. So yes, there's a difference. But it is amazing that corn dries virtually every day in the fall until it gets at least less than 25% moisture. Few other notes on corn. Man, you'd think the corn crop was actually important or something, (laughs) dog on it. Lodging. We talked about the plant cannibalizing the stalks, particularly on droughty areas. Yes, sir. That's what happened. Lodging from the wind on those eroded knolls on the sandy fields. Tons of lodging already. All you can do is harvest as quickly as you can. By the way, Jeff in Eastern Ontario says that the shanks out there are brittle. He was harvesting silage. The harvester would touch the plant. The cob would fall off and sometimes fall on the ground. So so some real concerns. We got to harvest as quickly as we can if the moisture allows us to do that. Last question from Paul. Paul had some pretty variably emerged corn. They got frost. And he said, Peter, I don't understand. The more mature plants, they didn't get hurt by the frost very much. But those shorter, stunted, late emerging plants, they got nailed by the frost. What's going on there? Well, Paul, I think your your suggestion is 100% right. The bigger plants, they had a better root system, they photosynthesized more, they were healthier, they simply were able to tolerate the frost better, whether it's more sugars in the cells that that give them a lower freezing temperature, but those stressed plants, they simply didn't have the tolerance for that frost, we've seen that before, that's not all that unusual. Wow, enough on corn already. So the wind, yes, in Western Canada, boy, my good friend Rhett, that does all the technical stuff for the word, he flew into Lethbridge. Now, if you've ever flown into Lethbridge, oh my gosh. That place is just always windy and, and takeoff and landing in Lethbridge is just hardly ever what you would call comfortable. He flew in, she was a pretty rough go, and that's what happens at 130 kilometer an hour winds. Wow, unbelievable. And so his question was, so Peter, you've talked lots about, you know, organic matter and soil moving in the wind. Is there any kind of calculation when we get these winds, how much how much organic matter, how much soil we've lost? And the answer, unfortunately, is no, there's no easy situation simple calculation because there's so many different factors. Why in western Canada, if you're going to work the soil, do you always work it perpendicular to the wind? Well, that's because the ridges you create, create turbulence at ground level so you don't get as much erosion as if you work it with the wind and the wind can just whistle down every cultivator run or every ridge that you've left in the field. If you have residue and that residue is attached to the soil by roots, then that residue essentially Stops all your wind erosion. Pretty rare you get wind erosion from that standpoint, but just way too many variables to figure that out. So then another good friend, Woody, it's so interesting how things link. Woody farms in Chatham, Kent. So here in Ontario, totally different conditions. But he emails me saying, Peter, like how much residue do I have to add to increase my organic matter content in the soil 1% and that's another great question and we can do some math but remember any organic matter additions the first thing you have to compensate for is how much natural breakdown you get and so that's where western Canada and eastern Canada differ a fair little bit in western Canada no-till really helps build organic matter in the soil because the breakdown process out there cooler soils shorter season doesn't happen as fast we get into Ontario and some of the data, particularly Bill Dean's data here at Alora Research Station, would suggest that no-till doesn't do that much to build carbon because we just naturally have warmer soils, wetter soils, more breakdown, and so we can't build organic matter by simply changing our tillage techniques. In terms of making 1% woody, quick math, it takes 100,000 pounds of totally dry, 0% moisture dry matter addition to the soil to build your organic matter level one percent good luck with that it's a slow slow process so Rhett don't let it blow away out in western Canada Oy, I gotta move on been a great fun discussion but let's move into the questions first up on soil test Sandy you asked about the Albrecht method of soil test that's the base saturation talks about 62 percent calcium 12 percent magnesium no full stop right out the gate Johnson doesn't buy it I just we, I had a neighbor who believed in that he tried to Change his potash percentage in the soil. He darn near went broke. It's all about the most limiting nutrient. I don't believe in base saturation ratios whatsoever, other than maybe with magnesium. You can look at base saturation to say, oh, I'm going to have soil stability problems here with magnesium because I have so much magnesium in the soil compared to my calcium. But that's probably the only ratio I think has much play whatsoever. The other question Sandy had was he's heard that DAP, diammonium phosphate, is better to build soil fertility map monoammonium pho- phosphate is better in the short term oh not a chance when it comes to phosphorus P, right a pound of P is a pound of P, no matter how you pee it so it just simply doesn't matter dap or map. Next, a question about nutrient removal of wood. This is kind of interesting. So the grower says he's harvest woods every year, a couple tons per acre per year, and his soil test isn't much lower in the bush than it is out in the field. Well, you know, there's not much nutrient in the woods. So think about this. If you burn the wood, you're burning the carbon. It's 50% carbon. It's about 42% oxygen. There's only 1% of the wood that is all the other minerals combined. And so burn it. Look at how much wood ash you have left. And in that wood ash, you have zero nitrogen, 1% phosphorus, 3% potash. Nope, you're removing a lot of carbon with the bush. You're not removing many nutrients. On nutrients, Judy, you asked about 75 bushel per acre soybeans. That's what your soybeans yielded this year. Wow! Oh, That's amazing. And you got the wheat in. That's excellent. You did the nutrient removal calculation. You were short four pounds of phosphorus, 23 pounds of potash. The question, if you broadcast 81 of phosphorus, 80 of potash, is that enough for the wheat? Well, the easy answer is yes. But boy, soil fertility is way more complicated than that. And I'd like to look at a three-year removal. We need to talk more. But the short answer is absolutely yes. Jennifer up in Renfrew, I spoke there. Oh, did she ever take me to task? Because she says, Peter, you never... Never say that wheat after canola is a good rotation. Well, let me change that right now. Yes, wheat after canola is one of the best rotations. In Ontario, I like wheat after peas better. But in Western Canada, there ain't nothing better than wheat after canola. So Jennifer, you're right. Grow wheat after your canola. Drew at Stratford asking, so mice, beans are late. It looks like I'm going to plant my winter wheat in November. From a soils perspective, rotations perspective, economic perspective, is November winter wheat better or fresh? seeded spring wheat better? My answer would be, if you can seed into good soil conditions in November, put the winter wheat in the ground because you never know when you're going to get the spring wheat planted. From an organic matter standpoint, from a soil standpoint, I don't think there's a big difference. I'd give the edge to winter wheat, but I don't think there's a big difference. On to the forage crops. First, a caller asking about harvesting the clover for green feed and what's the impact on nitrogen credit. So if you look at the Wisconsin data for alfalfa, they would say that Two thirds of the nitrogen is in the root. One third is in the above ground part of the plant. I think that's fair for clover. So if you have a 75 pound credit, yep, you're going to get 50 pounds if you actually harvest that clover. Don't get any regrowth. I think that's a pretty good compromise. Gosh, more feed value in in the clover than that. I would definitely take it. And finish up on alfalfa. Paul made an excellent comment about the critical fall harvest date for alfalfa. We talked about that the last update and Paul's comment was, Peter... Don't make it absolute. You're so right, Paul. There is no absolute because the critical fall harvest date is based on average temperatures after that period. And gosh, my good friend Nature Nut Nick had the best quote ever about averages. On average, if you put your head in the oven and your feet in the freezer you're comfortable. Man, you're not comfortable at all. But it's based on averages. So if you don't get average after the critical fall harvest period, different things can happen. So the critical fall harvest period is a guideline. You use the guideline to the best of your ability and you do what you have to do beyond that. By the way, to the caller from Mount Forest who said, this critical fall harvest period, doesn't alfalfa stop growing when it gets two nights of minus four Celsius or lower? And the answer is no Actually, alfalfa will keep growing even when temperatures get down to minus 9. Minus 9 is sort of the point where all growth ceases for alfalfa. Of course, it's not growing below zero. Don't misunderstand me. But but it won't go dormant. It continues to have some growth right till we get to those very, very cold temperatures at the end of the season. Not a minus 4 thing. It's more of a minus 9 thing. And with that, we're done. That's it. That's all on behalf of the team here at realagriculture.com. This is Wheat Pete with the word for Wednesday October October the 25th. Keep the feedback coming. Get that corn harvested, and we'll be back next week. Talk to you then. Bye now.